Father, as we see the writing on the wall, the literal writing on the wall from the Bible, we ask we might know what it means, we might know who you are, we might know how to relate to you, and we pray that you might have mercy on us uh, as we come to grips with uh, this uh, powerful moment of history uh, when you did something amazing and something devastating. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mean, who's heard the phrase, the writing's on the wall? Uh, yeah, okay. Who's ever had said to them, your writing's on the wall? Uh, has that happened to anyone? Uh, at 8 o'clock, someone stuck up their hand uh, when uh, their firm was downsizing. Uh, the writing was literally on the wall. They wrote up the names each week of who was getting the chop. Um, there you go. Uh, it's not a good sign if someone tells you the writing's on the wall. Hopefully uh, it doesn't get used of you, that your writing is on the wall. Because it's a phrase that means things look bleak, the end has come, this is it for you, you're about to be fired, you're about to lose your marriage, you're about to die, uh, as is the case with King Belshazzar as we go on. Daniel chapter 5 is where the phrase comes from. But unlike when we use that phrase, where we mean there's been strong warning signs that things look bleak, which have been going on for some months now. Unlike that, uh, everything was rosy. Everything was happy for King Belshazzar and Babylon. And the writing of the wall was sudden and unexpected. It came out of the blue and no one knew what it meant. And even more astonishingly, it was uh, literal writing on the wall. A hand popped out of nowhere, almost as if Harry Potter turned up in the Marauder's Cloak um, and his hand popped out from the Cloak of Invisibility and uh, used his quill and scrawled graffiti on the wall and uh, a disembodied hand in the air writing a message of judgment in the middle of a great feast in Babylon, the capital of the world at the time. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Not even a sentence, but still words that spell doom. And as we look at this remarkable event this morning, we're going to see the suddenness, the finality and the completeness of God's judgment. And we learn that God will not be mocked. And that's a really serious thing that we're going to hear today, that God will not be mocked by us or by anyone. And we see again just how important Nebuchadnezzar's change of heart was back in chapter 4, which uh, we were looking at last week. And if you weren't here, it would be really good to go and reread what happened to uh, this guy's grandfather, uh, King uh, Nebuchadnezzar, how he was brought, well, he became a Christian basically at the end of the, the chapter. Well, here we go. It's been at least 17 years since the events of chapter 4 where King Nebuchadnezzar went insane for a while. Uh, he uh, went stark raving mad, lost his mind, became like an animal, uh, went around naked with his hair matted, uh, eating uh, just grass off the, the field, uh, and everyone disowned him. He got kicked out. There was no mental hospital, uh, and so he became an absolute nutcase. But then he was miraculously healed sometime later. And although our Bible's called Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father, the word means predecessor, and as it turns out, Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's granddad. Belshazzar's dad was Nabonidus, and together Nabonidus and his son were co-regents. They were both the kings of Babylon at the same time. And uh, uh, 
Belshazzar ruled affairs at home because Nabonidus liked swanning around in international uh, holidays and things. He would uh, pursue antiques and uh, religious artefacts from overseas, often with his army at his back. And so it wasn't really buying him like on bargain hunt. It was give it to us now or we kill you. And Belshazzar reigned as king in his place at home, his son. And, and as it happened at this very moment in time, Nabonidus, because we know exactly what year this happened, 539 BC, 539 years before Jesus, Nabonidus was off leading his troops in battle, not that far from the city, some miles away, fighting the Medes and the Persians who were the rising power. Babylon, uh, Babylonia was the superpower uh, and there was um, a rebellion under Cyrus and Darius, two kings of the Medes and Persians, and it wasn't going that well for the Babylonians. But what was happening that night in the royal palace back in Babylon, a drunken feast. You know, the war's going on, let's have a party. <laughs> Belshazzar is not where a king should be. He's not encouraging the morale of his troops while battle rages just down the road. Uh, he's swanning about with his friends, eating, drinking and making merry. And it was a particularly great feast to which a thousand people had been invited. It's a big party. And not even Stephen Cass' farewell, as good as that's going to be next week, is going to be that, that strong. You know, not that, well, there might be. Well, let's hope and pray, but uh, probably not. Uh, nor the ladies' end of year dinner, uh, as good as that will be up at Norellan next week. Uh, but at, these two, at this feast... Uh, and like all the feasts of Babylon, the king sat on a raised platform in front of all the guests, kind of like the high table at a wedding, apart from everyone else. And as Belshazzar and his best mates and the thousand others uh, drank, they cried one toast after another to each and every one of their gods. They didn't want to offend any or leave any out. And there they are, kind of half drunk, going, the bell, <laughs> raise your glasses, the uh, neighbor, yeah, kind of thing. Uh, verse 4, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. They're feasting in the honour of the gods. And as they got increasingly drunk, Belshazzar gave the order, verse 2, <coughs> bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem. These were uh, precious golden cups that uh, were used in the ritual sacrifices of Israel. They were, they were used by when the priest slit the throat of the bull or the goat or the sheep or the pigeon or whatever it was he was killing. They would catch the blood in these cups and they would use it then to sprinkle the altar and the inside of the tabernacle. It was all coated in blood, the blood of the animal that died, symbolic of the fact that the animal was dying for the sins of the person who brought it or for the sins of the nation if it was the Day of Atonement. That, you know, and so it was, a, it was a holy item to be used for the forgiveness of sins of God's people. But Nebuchadnezzar, when he'd steamrolled Israel, had sacked Jerusalem, he'd had the temple torn down and he stole all of the precious and holy artefacts. And so these are those cups. And there they were, Belshazzar and his mates, drunkenly toasting their gods from these vessels used for the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. When suddenly, verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and they wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. I mean, it's a particular 
place in the kingdom. I presume if you're a tourist in Babylon in the years after this, you could go to the palace and go, well, that's where it happened, over there by the lampstand. You know, the scratching over there, that's, that's the words. The writing was on the wall, literally on the wall. Literal words, a literal hand, disembodied fingers, uh, and I guess presumably a quill because they didn't have gel pens and those kind of things. And people saw it and they were shocked. They're thinking, what the heck's going on here? What, <laughs> what's this hand? What are these words? What's happening? And there are certain moments in history when just a few words can change everything. We surrender ends a war. I will starts a new family as the vows are said and agreed upon. And sometimes when God speaks just a few words or writes a few words, it means that nothing will ever be the same again. A couple of other examples other than this one. When Martin Luther saw five words in the book of Romans, the just live by faith, he kind of blew his mind, he dropped his quill and he went, I get it now. Jesus is the one that saves us. All we can do is trust him. And he became a Christian and biblical Christianity was rediscovered and the Reformation started. Hundreds of years of war. All kinds of things happened because of five words. Uh, Augustine of Hippo heard three words uh, from the lips of a little child as he walked on by. Take and read. And he took that as a sign from God uh, that he should read the Bible. And so he picked up a Bible and started reading. He became a Christian. Uh, changed everything. How many words do we hear from God week after week if we're at church or read the Bible at home? Do they make us tremble? Uh, have we grown too familiar with the word of God? Are we bored by, by the scriptures? This, this is the book where God speaks. Uh, it ought to make us tremble whether the words praise us, well done, good and faithful servant, or whether they condemn us, away from me I never knew. Both are awesome words from the true and living God. Belshazzar saw the words on the wall and verse 6, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. I don't know if you can ever, if you've ever been in that situation you've been so afraid you just collapse. It's frightening and while we live in a day and age where you wouldn't bat an eyelid if this kind of thing happened in a movie because it happens all the time, you know, yeah, there's all kinds of special effects, uh, I still reckon it would scare us all witless if a hand popped out right now and started riding up there. Uh, if you could see it, I mean, I wouldn't be scared because it's behind me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'd be looking at your faces and they're not looking here, they're looking over there. You're just waiting for it to happen now. <laughs> um, but I reckon there'd be cries of amazement at the very least. Maybe some people would run straight for the door, others would be start pointing and screaming. Um, if a, you know, a hand just popped out and started writing. And Belshazzar is rightly petrified. This is, this is the stuff of ghost stories, only it's happening right in front of him and everyone can see it. And add to the problem, he has no idea whatsoever about what it means. It's foolish that he can see that it's words. He may even be able to read the words, but he doesn't get it. It makes no sense. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Okay, 
Maybe someone else knows what's going on. And so verse 7, the king called out for the enchanters, astrologers and diviners to be brought and uh, said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That is a huge reward just for working out what four words mean. Third highest after Nabonidus and himself. A prince of Babylon or a princess. And so in come all the wise men to explain the phenomena. But they can't help. It's such a mystery to them as, as it is to the king. Not a single one of them in all that vast assembly, the cream of Babylon, the intelligentsia, they, none of them could explain the word of God to Belshazzar, though he offered them unimaginable authority and riches if they could do it. I mean, I'd have been tempted just to make it up. Um, numbered, numbered, weight divided. Um, the hairs on your head, O king, have been numbered. Uh, your sins are as light as a feather. And um, we're going to divide the spoils of war. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And, but they can't do it. They won't do it. But then the real power behind the throne, the queen, uh, remembers there's someone in the kingdom who solves this kind of problem, although it's been many years since it's been done. So verse 10, the queen, queen hearing all the voices of the king and the nobles, came to the banquet hall, O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, or grandfather, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, well, that is the, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Well, this, this looks like a riddle and a difficult problem. Let's, let's get him. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what the writing means. So off the guards go. They grab him. Presumably it's the middle of the night, knocking on the door, rubs the sleep out of his eyes. Uh, and I guess when he went to bed that night, he little imagined that within some hours he'd be ready to face another king yeah, it's been 20 years or so, and, and give him another terrible message from God. And what I find fascinating is he doesn't just read the words out and then sort of make sense of it for the king and then run for the hills. Um, I mean, this is a hard message he's going to be speaking. He's going to tell the king it's all over. You're dead meat. Better to do what you've been ordered to do and then hope for the best. But... He goes a lot further than that. He starts rubbing it in and sticking it to the king in the middle of his you know, lords and knights and everyone who are gathered around drinking. He brings up dark family secrets, stuff about that incredibly embarrassing incident with his grandfather years before. And if that's not enough, he starts making deep accusations about Belshazzar the king to his face even before he gets to the writing on the wall. That's just... You know, the bonus stuff at the end. And so he reminds Belshazzar, his nobles, his wives, his concubines, how God has dealt with Babylonian kings in the past. Verse 18, we'll skip a little bit. (coughs) Daniel's speaking. O king, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendour. 
Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and they feared Nebuchadnezzar. This was the most feared man in the world. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put them to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar, as Babylon's king, did exactly whatever he wanted. He dominated the world absolutely and everyone knew who was the boss. And you did not step out of line. But, verse 20, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. He's out there naked. He's an embarrassment to the family. Uh, hair's matted. You know, nails have grown like claws because it's taken seven years of this madness and he's just this beast that no one wants to and loses the kingdom. Go back and read chapter 4. But it stopped. That happened until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets them over anyone he wishes. And we saw that in chapter 4, how it all happened. Daniel's fearless as he recalls to Belshazzar this hushed up incident, which Belshazzar presumably is aware of. He was around at the time. You know, he might have been a rotten teenager. He might have been, you know, in his 20s. He might have been, but Grandad went insane. You remember that, don't you, Belshazzar? Then having hammered that point home, Daniel directs his next words to Belshazzar himself. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. You knew, Belshazzar. You knew what happened to Grandad, how God brought him down. You knew how he went around like an animal. And you knew how he came good, but only when he said, God, you're the king. And he knew how God brought him back from there and restored his sanity and his kingdom. You knew all that, Belshazzar. But you, did you humble yourself like Nebuchadnezzar did, did, knowing how terrifying a thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God? Did you do anything about it, knowing that God wrecked your family? And then restored your family? Did you know it? Knowing the, the terrible judgment of God and the mercy of God? No, you couldn't care less. Couldn't give a stuff. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, what did you do? You set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles, your wives and concubines, you drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. They are completely stupid. You knew that. You knew the gods of Babylon were a lie, that God had overthrown them all. And here you are praising and bearing down and using the treasures of the real God to do it. You did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You knew and you didn't do it. He had not humbled himself before God. Instead he'd mocked God. He'd mocked him by forgetting God's clear message to his family all those years before. Forgetting what 
granddad came to know and presumably had instilled in his family that there is one God alone, he rules heaven and earth and he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and judges whom he wants to judge, mocked, mocked him by profaning God's property in drunken revelry. Daniel, <laughs> Daniel's not holding back. He's just telling it like it is. I think that courage that Daniel had displayed 20 years before with Nebuchadnezzar hadn't withered in the intervening years. I think sometimes we get, we get nervous as we get older, don't we? We look back and we can't believe the stupid things we used to do as kids and uh, the dangerous situations we put ourselves in and we'd never do it again. Uh, I remember um, I went fishing. I got invited to go fishing years ago with a mate from Windsor and we came to this cliff. He said, oh, we just got to climb up the face of this cliff with fishy rotting mouth because uh, we've got a fish on the other side. And I'm uh, like, okay, boom, straight up. I mean, I think if I got there today, I'd be like, uh, I, I, I now enjoy fishing, which I didn't then, and uh, but there's no way. <laughs> we'll just go over to Cronulla and the pier. You know? <laughs> uh, 20, yeah, 20 years ago, wouldn't have blinked, didn't blink. Uh, maybe it's age, maybe it's sensibility, uh, maybe it's the fact that I felt two stories and broke both arms and legs off a flying fox. I don't know. <laughs> but we get nervous about all sorts of things as we get older. We get nervous about new technology. We get nervous about meeting new people. We get nervous about uh, uh, change sometimes. We like the way things are and stable and don't affect that. And, uh, and even worse than that, we can lose the power of our convictions that we once held dear. We start to worry more and more what people will think of us and what our family will think of us and we don't want to upset anyone. And we, So we just hold a little more loosely to things and ideals that we once cherished and thought were really, really important. Daniel could have wimped out. It had been years since he was that brash young man standing up to the guy who ran the world, Nebuchadnezzar, that was, that was before he'd retired. Now he's in retirement, living comfortably, you know. Why cause trouble? But no, he clearly, confidently articulated the message from God. What Belshazzar should have known because of his family history. What his great sin was before God and what the message now was written on the wall behind him. And Daniel tells him what it means. The inscription is written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Four words, three different words, because one's repeated, all very strange. Mene, which means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign. The God who does not need to keep track and count, he does. He keeps track of us. He, he has seen the file on your life, Belshazzar. He's recorded everything about you. He's taken a comprehensive census of all mankind. Nothing has slipped by him and he knows how long your day shall be. More than that, he has numbered them. He's decided how long your day shall be. And that number is as high as it's ever going to be. You maxed out today. Tackle, both a coin and a weight. Belshazzar, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. God numbers every day of our life, but God also weighs a life. And there's nothing that he doesn't put on his scales. 
our DNA code with its genetic inheritance, the environment we grew up in, the family circumstances, our health, IQ, talents, decisions, education, the privileges we had, the gospel opportunities we had, whether you know, we knew the message or not, you know, the fears we have, the failings we have, the sins we have, the length of our days. God weighs our entire life. And, and having put Belshazzar on the scales, they didn't tip in his favour. He was found to be deficient. It was a shallow life, an empty and flimsy life for all its famous name, for all its wealth and achievements. There was nothing, nothing of the weight of God's glory at its heart. You have set yourself up, in fact, against the Lord of heaven. You have been weighed and you have been found wanting. Parson, divided. Your kingdom is divided and it's been given to others, to the Medes and the Persians who are walking in the gate right now. You have it all and it will now be stripped from you. I mean, everyone's going to be separated from everything they have at death, aren't they? But Belshazzar had more than you could ever dream of. Yet his worst enemies, the Medes and the Persians, were going to seize it all, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. What would you say if you were there at the party and this lunatic Daniel's raving on about it's the end of the world, <laughs> the end of the kingdom? What would you do if you were Belshazzar? Stand there. You wanted to know what that meant. You were really, really afraid of it. And then he's told you. Would you small, smile awkwardly at this strange little man? Give him a little pat on the head and say, there, there, you go back to your little happy farm. <laughs> uh, would you start backing out the door just in case he was right? Uh, just, uh, could you go? Yeah, would you? <laughs> uh, would you collapse on the spot because of the severity of the message, the devastation of what he's just said? Would you get angry and shoot the messenger? I mean, how dare he speak to the king that way? Kaboom! Yeah. What would you do? What does Belshazzar do? Let's get back to the party. More drinks. <laughs> Gone's the fear. His face turning pale. His knees knocking. No longer does his legs give way at the sight of the hand. He shakes off the fright. He simply cannot believe it. It's the last day of his life, it's the last opportunity he'll ever have to repent. But Belshazzar is as hard as he's ever been. And he says, strike up the band, let's go, let's drink. <laughs> is it because he's half drunk he just doesn't sink in? Is it? Does he just doubt the message because it's brought by this slave that Grandad captured? Uh, what does he say? Please be upstanding. A round of applause for Daniel. Yes, hear, hear. Well done. Country needs men like you. Uh, let's get back to the feast. Pick up where we left up. And so they applauded Daniel, saying, for he's a jolly good fellow, and called for a toast in his honour, dressed him in purple, promoted him temporarily to third highest of the kingdom. We'll fix that tomorrow. Uh, murmured something about further state recognition. Uh, there's no amen for Daniel's words. Certainly no God be merciful to us sinners. Let me show it to you here. Uh, verse 29. At Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain as Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Belshazzar had 
what I think every Australian who's ever had religious education of any sort, what they dream of, a perfect run, to live life as if you're the Lord of everything and then have the opportunity on the very last day of your life to know it's the end and that you'll repent then uh, and seek forgiveness for God for ignoring you so long. Sounds, sounds really wonderful to the unbeliever. And every unbelieving heart says, wow, that's for me. I, I want to live for me now and then deathbed repentance. That's the way to go. Um, I've talked to heaps of people like that. I've talked to people on their deathbed who've been like that, um, who still say there's time. You know, tomorrow I'll do it. If God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus is so good, if he's died on the cross for my sins, well, I'll worry about that when it's time. But I'll live like I want now and ask Jesus for forgiveness on my deathbed. So they want it. what do they want? They want their cake and to eat it too. To be godless and self-serving now and have all the benefits of God and his heaven later. And it's staggering. They're genuinely and utterly convinced that there's nothing wrong with thinking like that. They too easily think like Belshazzar, like the man in Jesus' parable who thought to himself, ah, yeah, yeah, life and death. You know what I'm going to do? We'll figure that out later. I'm going to build bigger barns now, um, tear my old ones down, build bigger ones, and then I'll store up my grain and goods. And I'll say to myself, you've got plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very light, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? And Jesus warning, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. If you're planning a deathbed repentance, what an idiot you are. What happened to Babylon that night, unbeknownst to the sleeping city and the drunken revelers, the army of the Medes and Persians swept into Babylon there was hardly any resistance as the people slipped away quietly. They said, well, oh, army, we're out of here. <laughs> and they handed it over to the invaders. And that night, Belshazzar lay as a corpse in the palace, dying amidst the temple goblets from Jerusalem, which still had the dregs of wine in them, spilled upon the floor. And just imagine you're having a birthday party and all your friends are at your house and then during the speeches... There's some other words that pop out. They're written on the wall behind you. Hand from nowhere, graffitiing, four words, numbered, numbered, way divided at your birthday party. Um, and you knew what they meant because they'd been written somewhere before. Not They weren't written the previous time to you but to another. But what would you make of it? What would you do? Would you make like Nebuchadnezzar had done? You know, those years before, acknowledge God's greatness and his right to do what he wants and turn quickly in repentance and ask for forgiveness? That would be the sensible thing to do, wouldn't it? Or would you do a Belshazzar and go, couldn't care less? You see, God has spoken very clearly. We live in an age of opportunity. And he's spoken to us of his judgment and how we've all been weighed and found wanting Bible's very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not everyone, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. God has weighed us. 
And he knows that every single person, as nice as they might be, as lovely family persons they might be, as Mother Teresa goodness they might be, has been weighed and found wanting. But he's also spoken of a gracious salvation that Jesus in love has come, God become man, which is what Christmas is all about, that he has died for our sins, that he has taken it upon himself so that you don't have to pay for it. You may have been weighed and found wanting, but he took the consequences. And so if you want it, you can be forgiven and come back to God and be right with him and have love and life and eternity and it's all on him. God holds out his gospel for us today and our society, including many of our friends and families, are ignoring that voice. None of us knows whether this will be the last day that we live. That has been made patently obvious this week, hasn't it, in the news. Philip Hughes, 25-year-old, rising star, playing the sport he loved, whacked in the head, and now he's dead. That's shocking, and we want to pray for his family and friends and in their grief, but none of us knows whether this will be the day that we die. I got a phone call on Friday afternoon from Camden Hospital saying one of the ladies, she says, you know, the family says she's from your church, she's in palliative care and she's about to die. She had a fall and broke her hip just uh, a couple of months ago, Joyce Trotman from 8 o'clock. No one ever heard about it. She just disappeared off the face of the earth and uh, it's led through a series of circumstances to her, well, what looks like to be her death. We don't know. We don't know if this is the day the Lord Jesus is going to make good and his promise to come back and to judge the world. And so mark the words of scripture. Behold, now is the time of salvation. Now is the time of God's favour. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart.